0: everyone. Welcome back to the TechCrunch Live podcast, where we help founders build better venture-backed businesses. I'm Matt Burns, and this is the podcast version of our weekly live show, which you can register for at TechCrunch.com. Today, I spoke to James Pierre, the co-founder of Cambrian Biopharma, and Marianne Asenko, co-founder and partner at Future Ventures. Cambrian Biopharma is a new pharmaceutical startup with a revolutionary approach to developing and managing drug development for age-related diseases. And that's great, but I'm most interested in how Cambrian's executive team attracts and retains top talent. Here's a spoiler, though. They give them an oversized amount of equity compared to traditional pharmaceutical companies. James and Mariana spoke to us about several things today, including developing therapeutics for anti-aging in a way that works with the existing regulatory structure. How James and Mariana solved the venture capital math problem. But first, we spoke on moving research from academia to the real world and how James fights misconception and buzzwords around longevity biotech. Hey everyone, this is TechCrunch Live, where we help founders help other founders build venture-backed businesses. I'm Matt Burns. You're going to need to strap in today. This is going to be a good one. Uh, It's going to be a ride. Think of Cambrian Bioscience as a distributed development company for drug development, like a hub-and-spoke model. Cambrian Bioscience, ran by my guest today, James Pierre, is developing companies that is developing drugs focused on age-related diseases. This is a radical approach to drug development, but it's a trend that's been on the rise for the last five to seven years. The best example I can find is of Moderna who developed ways to use mRNA and now has a whole portfolio of drugs that, that use that one development. And as I understand it, Cambrian Bioscience is not looking just to spin up these companies to spin them out. They actually want to take them through testing and to the market as well. That said, I'm very excited to bring James and Mariana here and talk about developing therapeutics for anti-aging. James, Mariana, how are you?
1: So well. Thank you, Matt. Doing well. Yeah. Okay.
0: So, James, I need to start with you. Can you bring us up to speed on what Cam- where Cambrian Bioscience came from, what you've been doing, and where you're going? Sure. So so really
2: briefly, uh, as you kind of said, Cambrian is a drug development company. So we're creating new medicines. And Kind of taking those out of discoveries at universities mostly by by individual professors and moving those forward into you know clinical trials and ultimately medicines that could be prescribed to you by your doctor but the unique thing about Cambrian or maybe the two unique things about Cambrian is first what kind of medicines we're building and secondly how we're doing that the types of medicines that we're building are all derived from discoveries in a specific field in academia. And these are discoveries related to what causes us to age. There's been an explosion in our level of knowledge and what causes the kind of bits of molecular damage that accumulates in each of our cells as we get older. And so each of our 14 different drugs somehow fix, repair, or stop that damage from happening. And then the second part is kind of how we do it, where most biotech companies will you know, kind of spin out of a university, they'll build a team around it, and they'll take kind of one shot on goal, and either it'll work or it won't. Whereas our approach was to build a much bigger, longer-lasting platform where we could create um, create a place and create a team that could develop not just one, not just two, but 10, 20, 30 drugs, all united by this theme of aging biology.
0: When did you found the company and how much have you guys
2: raised? So so I started the company in 2019. um, And thanks to Mariana and a number of our other investors, we've raised about 160 million right uh, to date and actually have brought our first drugs into human clinical trials.
0: Mariana, how does Cambrian Bioscience fit within your investment thesis?
1: So our investment thesis is to, one, fund things unlike anything we've seen before that also hopefully make the world a better place and aren't predatory on humanity and the planet. And so um, Cambrian very clearly fits in kind of all of those buckets. Uh, But more importantly, as we've looked in in this science of aging, this geoprotective space, um, recognizing that within global aging populations. These are really questions we need to address to ensure kind of graceful aging in place for all peoples. Um, What we really appreciated about what Cambrian is doing is saying, it's not just one mechanism or modality. It's all of these interconnected systems. And what are the learnings that we can take across these adjacencies? And how do we build a, a kind of holistic and cohesive model of aging. And that's really what was so compelling for us on top of the the obvious fact that James is just an incredible entrepreneur. And you guys will hear that today in, in hearing him speak about the company.
0: So James, your, your company focuses on age-related therapeutics and drugs. And there's a lot of buzzwords around that. And there's a lot of good stuff out there and a lot of bad stuff out there. How do you fight misinformation and buzzwords?
2: So- I've been kind of dedicating myself to this science since I was a teenager. I decided to start working on this when I was 15. And uh, back then, the the kind of collective noun that researchers who were studying the biology of aging and wanted to translate that into human use, it was immortalists back then, which is way worse than it is even today. And it's still pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, it's right? pretty bad. Um, yeah. And so as I started... Kind of training and getting a PhD and like becoming an actual scientist, I had to push back against all of this non-scientific bullshit that people who were mixing science and like the real potential of the science with these philosophical ideas that we hear about a lot in science fiction, but also in like fantasy, right? People talking about elves and this kind of stuff, right? Um and and so I think there's two important ideas to push back on here. The first one is around separating this tendency to talk about the social and philosophical implications of questions like, well, what if we lived forever? What if we didn't have to die? These sorts of things. And separating that from the actual scientific opportunity which is now that we understand at a deeper level what's happening in our bodies before we get sick, could we imagine a healthcare system that doesn't wait for people to get sick and then try to do something about it, which is how all modern cancer drugs and Alzheimer's drugs and heart disease drugs. like All of these things are wait for you to get sick and then try to do something about it. And could we imagine a healthcare system where we understand what's going on at the cellular level in our bodies and build medicines, not just diet and exercise, which we know can help in that situation, but actually use our knowledge of biology to build new medicines that can keep us healthier longer. And I think that as a framework is really what this whole Academic world of the study of aging or geroscience, as Mariana said, that's what it's trying to do. And the way that this is going to impact our lives in reality, at least in the next 10 or 20 years, is with a new generation of preventative medicines that should affect the world, I think, profoundly. But it'll affect it more like, you know, how vaccines and antibiotics affected the world in the first part of the 1900s, as opposed to like, you know, how something. In, in some like some science fiction world where now everyone's living forever and creating all sorts of new moral quandaries affects the world. I think that's so far like outside of the realm of where the science actually is that if we focus everything in, and I've been trying to get people to say this forever, just like call them preventative medicines. And all of a sudden everyone's like, yes, we actually want some of those.
0: Yeah, I, I think a lot of the hesitation around it is—is is there's occasionally stories pop up. Peter Thiel comes to mind, right? And and his his quest for anti-aging things, and and then you guys are doing something with the actual therapeutics and drugs and addressing Alzheimer's solutions. So how how do you line those things up and tell your customers or your potential investors that you're doing A instead of B? The key decision
2: when we were building Cambrian that separated us from a lot of other, I would say, less scientifically grounded therapeutics plays. And Mariana's probably seen, I think, especially since investing in Cambrian, a lot of folks have come to you to talk about longevity biotech. Um, I think the key differentiator is how much value you ascribe to the, let's call it the longevity applications of a technology. And I, I mean something really specific by that, because we knew that if we were going to try to approve drugs through our existing regulatory system and run clinical trials to get a drug approved as a preventative that's going to be hard right we don't have any of those drugs right now and so if we wanted to build an entire company based on that future regulatory approval it was going to be a long expensive and high high risk road and so each of the drugs that we built are designed to fit within the existing regulatory infrastructure they're going to treat an rare orphan disease first, or a certain type of cancer, or a certain type of heart disease in the existing more reactive system. But each one of them has the possibility to be safe and effective as a preventative. And so the reason I think that framework is important is that strategy allowed us to assign this whole potential for these multi-disease preventative drugs. We assigned that to zero when we were raising money from investors, for the company and saying, look, we will be successful based on our fundamentals as a biotech company in the existing system. And then there's this long tail of upside of like, if we're successful at our North Star and our mission, you're going to do great and we're going to do great. And we don't need to try to price that in to the company today. Um, And I think you can almost draw a line and like the companies that are mostly talking about the anti-aging applications of their technology they're probably trying to value like, value that at a non-zero level. And the companies that are mostly talking about the near-term applications of that technology with this potential upside are probably more grounded in the science and more likely
0: to be successful. Right. Now, Marianne, I'm sure you, you heard a lot of this during the initial pitch. What was your take when you first heard it?
1: I was frankly delighted to hear this on two fronts, which is, right, Einstein said God does not play dice with the universe or some iteration of this, and that was around quantum mechanics and my own interpretation of that as an investor is we don't play games with regulators um that's a that's a difficult and expensive business for early stage venture capitalists to be in because it's really hard to know what's going to sway them and 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 there are different modalities here right there there are people who are saying well let's cure diseases in dogs and then hope that some of those mechanisms translate into humans and i think i think there's a myriad path i don't think there's a zero sum game here in terms of a one true path to understand aging i think what was compelling for us in particular was the sense of solve real conditions for real people today in a safe efficacious manner have several shots on goal right to use a very tired metaphor but a reality when you when you think about platform biology companies, like what a platform biology companies look like today. They look like, well, our data set is going to be useful many times over, or they look like companies like Cambrian, where you're saying, no, what we understand is how to run these structures and styles of companies and recruit the right talent to bring these assets forward in the market. And there's actually a lot of iterative learning and having kind of the same bright minds thinking about pathways, setting up clinical trials, recruitment, the rest of it. And, then then this final question this this piece that we really w- were inspired by is how does a company like cambrian have lasting power in the market beyond you know potentially large but maybe flash in the pan kind of single asset plays and what we thought is you know if they can unlock the the higher abstraction level of saying these are the biomarkers of aging and these are the mechanisms that we know to understand to affect them in patient populations that are suffering diseases today, but then from that, then prescribing them potentially as preventatives to larger population sets in the future. I think that's a company that I can actually, you know, draw a line out to having real equity value over the course of 20, you know, 10, 20, 50 years, because that's, that's a pilot that just keeps growing.
0: Yeah. So I think one of the interesting things about your company, James, is that, that you put scientists in charge of these projects, right? You bring on scientists, Support them in a way, and then let them develop on their own outside of your company. Is, is that correct?
2: That's not the way that we think about it. I would say. there there's there's elements of truth to that. we are taking a, a different approach. But the way that we think about it is kind of keeping the scientists who have made a fundamental discovery more involved. In, drug, in the drug development and in the ongoing work of the company than they would either if they were working with a big pharmaceutical company or if they were working in the traditional like VC-backed biotech space, but certainly not making them do it alone. I think something that non-scientists, um, I think it's really hard to appreciate, and when I was an academic, I didn't appreciate it at all, is that Within this idea, even if you just take preclinical drug development, like there are relay races within relay races of different types of expertise uh, required to move things from from point to point, and you can have a great biologist who understands. Like a specific molecular mechanism better than anyone in the world, but then now when you say, okay, in order to get this ready for for humans, please optimize your chemical using the latest AI tools and like organic chemistry to figure out how it will dock to its target in a better way than the one that you found so far does, it's a completely different set of responsibilities, which then have to be passed off to the next person who's like, okay, now... You know, do all of the safety and and efficacy testing to figure out if like this is going to pass muster with the regulators. And only then can you start the clinical trials where you have a whole nother cascade of complexity and expertise required. And so our objective, instead of pulling the technology out of a scientist's hands and try to like build it all within a company, our objective was to say, look, we can build all of these pieces, like Mariana was talking about, as like a platform, a team that can be some of the best in the world at thinking about each of these individual verticals, and then attach them in a really flexible way to a scientist that has made some breakthrough, and then be their partner in guiding that forward into clinical trials. And so we can then flexibly deploy that team into a bunch of different drug development programs.
0: I was hoping to talk about specifics here. Uh, you just had a company spin out, Amplifier Therapeutics, correct? Exactly. Right. So tell me about that structure because I look at the background and the person leading it is, I'm going to look at my notes here, uh, Dr. James Hall, right? Yes. Dr. James Hall, according to my research, was the CEO of a previous therapeutic company. And before that, he was high up in AstraZeneca. What did he find compelling about Cambrian bios- Bioscience that he didn't at had- AstraZeneca, or the other company.
2: I don't want to put words in James's mouth because he's, he's an impre- incredibly impressive guy. So he's an MD-PhD who was a Rhodes Scholar, um, finished up at Oxford, and then had like done yeah you know, work for big pharma companies. But then he got attracted to this drug, which wasn't discovered by him, but by two, uh, two scientists, a hus- husband and wife team working in northern Sweden in a little town called Umea that I had not heard of before, and and so Thomas and Helena, uh, working in, in UMEA, were experts in this specific pathway, AMPK, and AMPK is the most important gene in our body for telling us how to respond once we've exercised, and once we exercise, this gene turns on and tells our body to do all the things that we associate with the positive effects of exercise, and We've known probably for 25 years now that if you can click that program uh, click that protein on, then we can get those benefits without necessarily having to, you know, go for a jog or go lift weights. I know. And and furthermore, it can probably enhance the effects of exercise so that every amount like every incremental amount, you get more out of it, and it's easier to fall out of and go back and like get back into the saddle um, for a lot of things. So in any case. Thomas and and Helena discovered this molecule and started building a company with a little bit of local funding, um, started moving things forward over the course of like 10 years. And it was only about two years ago that James left AstraZeneca to come join uh, that little company that they were building because he saw the potential of this drug. And one of the first things that he said when he got in is like, we need a partner to help us take this forward. And this pathway is one of the most exciting, most interesting pathways in the world of aging biology. And so they actually approached us because they wanted a partner that understood aging biology could help take this really to the next level as it went into the clinic. And we, uh, hashed out a partnership where Amplifier or the previous company called Betagenon would transform into Amplifier and that Amplifier would be a part of Cambrian.
0: How many of these spin-out companies have you, have you done so far? So
2: we've actually done about 14 of which 10 are still alive and i mentioned that because this is another very important principle of the model which is like not everything works and and so in in fact there's this these like really sobering statistics that mouse experiments published in top tier journals can only be reproduced about 20% of the time meaning 4 out of 5 don't work when you try it again our hit rate on that has been much higher than the pharma company Amgen, who who published this famous paper in cancer, but still, like the first thing that we do is always try to reproduce the experiments with with the scientists, and sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't, um, and sometimes it works, and then we still find another reason that like, you know, there's no disease that we can move forward for this drug in the regulatory system that we talked about, and so for those reasons, we've definitely made some no-go decisions along the way, by kind of that pruning is part of the power of this model to kind of focus our efforts and resources in on the drugs and on the technologies that have really the highest
0: potential. Yeah, that's interesting. And I'm hoping we can talk about how how the equity breaks out here. How much is Mariana getting from these spin-out companies and how much are the founders getting? I'm very interested in the structure.
2: Okay. Well, so most of that, we don't we don't publish much of that online, but I can give you kind of like the frameworks.
0: I know. That's why I'm
2: asking because I can't find it. So... So from a a framing perspective, um, when we start these subsidiary companies of Cambrian, like they each have their own name, but they don't usually have their own dedicated teams apart from the, the key personnel required for running that trial or doing that biology. And so like, I don't have any personal stake in any of these underlying companies. They're all majority held subsidiaries of Cambrian and usually the only shareholders are Cambrian and the individual scientists and other team members of those of those technologies, right? And so the structure there, just to kind of orient you on this a little bit, uh, is that the general way that these will work. If you take like, let's go for the two the two salient examples, right? Most drugs either go in through the big pharma route or they go into the biotech VC route and along the kind of like East coast, uh, biotech VC model, which also exists for a bunch of places in the West coast. I'm just kind of simplifying here. Like a scientist will usually end up with, you know, by the time a drug enters clinical trials between two and 5% of a company, and then they will get further diluted down from that. And there's all kinds of, you know, the VC world with present company excluded is, uh, Like, especially in biotech, there's a lot of dirty tricks that have been done, especially to founding scientists once it was viewed that the founding scientists weren't needed anymore. And they're like the drug that they discovered was in the clinic. And so they would do like down rounds with preferred with anti dilution provisions to just squeeze them out right before selling the company and all of this kind of stuff. And scientists talk. So they all know these types of things are done in VCs. And then in pharma, you basically send it off to a pharma company and you never see it again. And so, so there's a lot of like, I mean, this has sort of led to this explosion of founder or scientist-led biotech companies, which is really a new model that I would say is still proving itself out. It puts a lot of pressure on the scientists to do all of the stuff that we talked about that they don't necessarily know how to do, like the medicinal chemistry and the clinical trials and all this kind of stuff. And so with Cameron's model, what we're able to do is to come in and say, look, we're gonna give you an equity stake. Let's pretend it's like, and it, it's it's different for for each company and each stage, but like a substantial chunk, high single digit percentages is about the the right place to go, but it will not dilute because we're going to figure out how, like basically protect you, if you're the scientist, Matt, from being squeezed out by us and put that into the contracts right from the beginning so that we say, look, if this works out, you're going to be a multimillionaire no matter what we do with the finances and the contracts behind the scenes because you made this great discovery and like giving that level of assurance plus the high quality team behind it that's i think really what has made this a compelling pitch not just for the scientists but also for like the universities that they work for who want the best for their scientists and want the best shot of their technology making it at the end
0: what about the venture capitalists is this a preferred way of doing business for you Mariana
1: well, yes, because we we picked it right. So by the very nature of, of the exist our existence and in participation here, we we clearly believe in this model. I, I think it works on two fronts, which is one, I think at the end of the day, investors are best suited when highly qualified, highly motivated teams continue to have an appropriately aligned incentive structure. Because otherwise things get very wonky very quickly. The other side is to say, you know, I, I think we fundamentally believe that by investing in the Topco in Cambrian and having it have these successful underlying subsidiaries, that enough value thro- flows through the Topco through the growing equity of Cambrian and back into its investors. And so we fundamentally believe in that. And I think we'll also find out if there's even a hybrid model within here, where, which is to say whether or not some of these subsidiary companies in times of economic turbulence like what we're in today frankly, should stand a little bit more independent in their own right to kind of offset some of the early costs to Cambrian. But I think over the long run, we fundamentally believe in the model as James has laid it out, even if there's an intermediary where a couple of these companies end up being a little bit more independent because some outside capital is willing to come in at a lower cost of capital than Cambrian can provide
0: right right why does this work so well in in drug developments and do you see it working anywhere else in any other industries
1: i think it really works well in drug development from the place of what james was talking about this kind of baton passing of you have early builders who are doing this you know fundamental mechanistic biological science and then but it actually looks very different to go and bring a drug to clinic and so how do you pass that baton but maintain appropriate Ownership and compensation and remuneration for all of the players along the stage. And so I think in a model like that, where there's initial brilliance and discovery, and then still brilliance, but maybe more generalized skill sets and more generalizable skill sets. And so I, I think any model that carries that forward probably will we'll see something similar. I think we're actually frankly seeing something similar in AI companies today, where you know you have initial developers coming up with novel algorithms and modalities. Um, but it, it's actually the same kind of executives who come in at a product level and an engineering level and a marketing level, and they turn the crank on that, right? I mean, we have companies in the robotics field who are hiring chief executives from like fintech companies, because at, at the end of the day, like what it, what it takes to build build technologies from those nascent stages to actually coming and hitting the market, like those are similar skill sets. So the question is, what is the right model? And I think the reason that we don't see this across too many sectors outside of drug development is that there's just not as much of a pipeline in the same like structured manner. I I think frankly, this would work in almost any heavily regulated industry where you kind of, you just, you have like locks in a canal that you kind of have to pass through.
0: Yeah,
2: great. James. No, I think I think that's a really good way of of framing it. The kind of rubric that I always use to think about like where else this could be applied is as I like to think of, you know, whether a company, like the the commercialization of a technology, um if it gets more similar as it gets more advanced or it gets more different. And I I feel like for most, let's say, software companies, they actually start more similar it's like, hey, we're putting together a small group of team and we have to like build a little product and like demonstrate something. And then they have to find their product market fit and they become more specialized as they grow. Whereas in drug development, I see it kind of moving in the opposite direction instead of like this direction going outwards, instead everything starts so different, right? You've made some discovery over here for this pathway or that pathway. And it's like Completely different models, completely different expertise required. But then you're all going to the same place because everyone has to file the same regulatory documents with the FDA. And whether you're a gene therapy or a, you know, protein or a small molecule, there are differences between those things, big differences. But like, there's also a ton of similarities. And and so I see it as like a bottlenecking um, based on yeah the the regulatory requirements like Mariana was talking about. And I think anytime you have that. You can build not just an executive, like a leadership team that has those business fundamentals, but a technical generalist team that has like these research fundamentals or or these regulatory fundamentals or whatever it is that can like take the baton or move to the next lock uh, to advance the technology forward.
0: Yeah, so your last raise was October 2021, 100 million dollar round, right? What kind of capital requirements is required to to fund four or five of these every year going forward? A a large amount.
2: When I first built the the Excel model for Cambrian that I I pitched to Mariana for our Series A, what I what I told her at the time was that it was going to take about half a billion dollars. Total to make Cambrian fully self-sustaining and profitable as a drug company. And we're still on track to do that. Um and one of the pitches was like, if you take any one individual biotech company developing one platform, it's probably 250 in order to reach that point. And the fact that we can do we can have 10 assets and kind of reach that self-sustainability with 10 plus companies kind of under our our purview is a pretty cool idea that we can be much more cost efficient than something like this. But it does have these really large capital requirements in, in a contracting market. So as Mariana was talking about, one of the cool things about the model we have is optionality. We can always raise capital at the TopCo or find an opportunity to do a deal with pharma just around one asset or, you know, raise capital from specific like drug by drug venture investors, which also exists around just one asset and so on.
0: Yeah. But if you did have to go to the markets, I was to to burn a little time here and asking Mariana about the fundraising environment right now for companies such as this. Would, would James have issues raising right now?
1: You know, I... I think it depends a lot on who he's talking to, um, and there there are certain groups out there right now who are sitting on their hands on all new opportunities or frenetically trying to protect their own portfolios. Right there's a there's a modality of kind of keep or kill in the market right now, and and not a lot of and and so I I think there is this question of. Who who are the right funders at an inflection point like this for a company like Cambrian where the sky's the limit on the upside, but that can feel constraining in a market where everyone is saying, oh, my cost of capital is a fair bit higher than it was not that long ago there seem to be a bunch of potentially asymmetric outcomes here and the good and the bad side. And how do I protect my downside? And, and so I think these very relevant questions and at the same time, my, my sense is that there, there are plenty of groups who are, have the kind of long-term vision who say, this is not a nice to have ideology. Like this is a fundamental need and necessity. And I think what we've seen over the long arc of human history is that investors who have been willing to kind of lay that pipe work early, right? So in in whatever their respective fields, right? You can look at Edison and the early days of electricity and how he partnered with J.P. Morgan and like the you know the 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 initial funding and questions of saying how do you fundamentally change the landscape of how we're going to think about entirely novel sectors. And I think that's one of the questions that Cambrian is asking of the world today is to say, who's really thinking over the long arc of human health and human aging and healthy aging?
0: We're about out of time here and I'm going to cut you off, James, Um, but I got to do one more thing for Mariana here. What are you funding right now? And what's the best way for entrepreneurs to pick future ventures?
1: Yeah, um, oh, we... Honestly anything under the sun that is uh a novel technology that's that's on good fundamentals like technological fundamentals as much as I love fantasy novels right we we do get down to to bare metal but um right now I mean I I deeply care about anything that's addressing our our capacity to live cohesively and sustainably on on this planet and maybe eventually other planets and uh, just shoot me an email to Mariana at future.ventures. And I I'd, I'd love to hear from anyone who thinks they're doing something world-changing.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much for that part, but we do, we're, we're not done yet. We have one more segment of the show called picture practice. And this is one of my favorite parts, although the conversation was absolutely lovely but we have three entrepreneurs lined up and they're on the line right now. The goal here is to give them the chance to practice their pitch. So they're going to have two minutes to pitch you, you two. And then we get four minutes of feedback and the feedback can be about their pitch. It can be about their company. It can be about anything. So we're, with that said, we're going to bring on the first one. And I think these are all medical adjacent. Oh, the wild card is not. But the first two are medical adjacent. So we're going to bring on, OE medical? Well, sir, I'm going to start the timer now. So you have two minutes to present your company. Okay, here we go.
3: Hello, good afternoon again. Uh, I'm Dr. Adarshim Patil. I'm a minimal access surgeon, and I have a 20 years experience as a surgeon. And I have invented a scope to peek inside the abdomen under local anesthesia. Presently, if you want to peek inside the abdomen, you have to perform a surgery, a a diagnostic laparoscopy or a diagnostic laparotomy, which means we have to admit the patient to the hospital, shift him to the operation theater, give him an anesthesia and perform a surgery, which is expensive and painful and inconvenient for the patients. With our scope, this procedure can be performed as an ambulatory procedure, which means patient can walk in, get this procedure done and walk out on the same day, which is cost-effective, convenient and quick. So. Uh, this uh, so so this has multiple compelling applications in cancer care, women's health, emergency care, and it has some very exciting future applications. Uh, the total addressable market size for this uh, endoscopies is 40 billion dollars and the accessible market size is around four billion dollars. We have a patent for this device, And we have received a very good uh, first examination report. And we, we are in the process of applying for an FDA and getting an FDA clearance. And we are looking for an investment of $1 million to get our product to market. There are approximately 20 OEMs in the market. We intend to partner with them. We leverage their global marketing and distribution network and get to the market quickly. And we have a uh, we have a great opportunity to exit with these companies as well. Thank
0: you. Oh, very good. Thank you so much. And I was busy looking at your website. You have you have a nice demo on your site, Mariana. Let's let's start with you. Any feedback?
1: Uh, well, one I'm I'm just deeply impressed with your capacity to so eloquently share uh, a frankly pretty complicated topic in a very short time. The The challenge for many investors around med devices is how you get through the regulatory pathway and whether or not you'll be a novel device or kind of tag along to an an existing uh, device framework. Do you know which one you fill in? Yeah. So
3: we have a predicate as a laparoscopic device. So uh, we have identified a predicate, and uh, we uh, we uh, we uh, we, uh, we are expect to go through the FDA in the next six months. So we have a predicate for this device, and also we intend to use existing CPT codes. Actually,
1: that's great. Um, yeah. So that was my next question, which was whether or not existing codes uh, you can already slide in underneath. I think one of one of the challenges ends up being who are the right capital providers for a company like this because the the simple reality is that you know the the medical device market is completely cornered by a handful of players like Boston Scientific uh and they they kind of have a, have a throttle on the market and so because you end up effectively needing to partner with these partners they they hold such lopsided unit economics in those partnerships. And that can be very frightening for an early stage investor to say, well, I don't really know what I'm getting because potentially I get washed out in one of these partnerships and where the royalty streams. So really my feedback would, would be at the earliest stages is to the extent that you can draw out the boundaries of those partnerships that will lead to the deepest clarity for your early stage investors. Um, The other aspect is this question of who are the right types of funders. Uh, Medical devices tend to have uh, somewhat of a ceiling on outcomes. They they can be very, very good, excellent outcomes, um, but they might not always look like early stage venture capital outcomes in terms of total capital required and capital in. And so... Uh, I know that James has a bit of experience here in terms of like the various parties who fund very varying early stage companies in the space. So I'm going to pass the baton to James and see if he has anything to add on from that perspective.
2: So I agree that that picking the right people, I, I like to say there's, there's startups and there's businesses. And I think a lot of these kind of OEM player med device programs, they can be great businesses. But I think a lot of people won't look at them, like Gariana was saying, as a startup. Um, I know we only have a minute left. So I wanted to offer two two kind of additional maybe pieces of feedback or, or thoughts coming from my perspective as an entrepreneur who does a lot of pitching. And so my two, uh, two comments there is, I think, firstly, you 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 know you have a, a really deep technical background and so you jumped right in with like, we're going to do like a new type of laparoscopic surgery and so on. But I think it would be really effective, even if it's just 10 or 20 seconds to make it real for people. Like, is this something that would be used in, you know, I'm going to use an example that is maybe not correct, but, but like in a tummy tuck or in a, you know, is this something that's used in plastic surgery, right? Like removing fat, like bring it to life a little bit of like what this device is going to be used for. And then second comment is um, I, I always, I mean, I avoid telling the long story because we only have a couple of seconds, but I always get skeptical when there is both high novelty and an accelerated path of regulatory approval. And so so I think if you're saying we can get direct regulatory approval of this device in six months and be on the market, then you like investors will be skeptical immediately of how novel or differentiated the device is to not have a longer regulatory pathway. And so addressing that inherent skepticism head on of like, here's what this is like, but it's better in this way so we can use the accelerated path or here's why like we have this completely new, completely novel thing, but we're gonna be able to run that accelerated path. I think that's the immediate kind of uh, skepticism that I see from investors when we
3: talk about something new there. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Point taken. Thank you. Uh, just uh, clear, Adriana. So we have a disposable device. So it's single use. So we could uh, independently market it uh, from the OEM. So that option we, we carry because it's a disposable device and uh, we can just uh, uh, market it quickly.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much and keep in touch. Next up, we have David. David's from Aur- Aurora Sense. There you are, David. How are you?
4: Very good. Thanks for having me today.
0: Of course. Yeah. Well, you have two minutes to present your company and let's start that timer now.
4: Thank you very much, everybody, for allowing me to present. My name is David Charlo representing Orson's Tech Corporation. We're doing something we think is quite necessary and needed in today's age. You could see my face right now. You could hear my voice, but we can't do a high five to each other. It's not possible because of the current solution we have for uh, uh. tele uh, or video conferencing but what we are at Orsense is a digital health company that's actually bringing the ability to bring touch to telemedicine so remote physical exams could be possible using the power of haptics. Digital haptics of course meaning digital touch so you can imagine if you've ever played a PlayStation or Xbox when you know you're flying and and the plane gets hit your, your controller rumbles that's haptics that you can feel or your cell phone when it vibrates that's something like that uh, back in uh, uh, during the pandemic, my little daughter she had some special needs and needed to see an occupational therapist, where they do physical hands-on care for her. But during the pandemic, that was largely shut down, and I saw firsthand the complications of diagnosing a three-year-old through telemedicine uh, without the ability to make measurements or actually have interactive touch. And from that, I decided to use my PhD in bioengineering and robotic skills to start OraSense Tech Corporation with my co-founders Amber Ives of Ocean Daniel where we're bringing a very straightforward technology to modern day today. We're using and following some of the same momentum that companies like Hinge Health and Sword uh, Health have for bringing uh, uh, the ability to do remote telemedicine for musculoskeletal disease management uh, to life. We, and our focus is on neurological disorders, which are much more complicated, but according to the trajectories, it's going to be uh, one of the largest cost centers for many nations. Uh, We're looking at having about 1.5 billion people with some neurological disorder by 2050, and they're going to need optimal care. Uh, We have joined uh, such wonderful groups like the HTEC Collaborative, H HTEC Collaborative, because of our solution to help with longevity care.
0: Uh, Thanks for your time. Dave, that was wonderful. He, I mean, you nailed so much stuff within there. James, can we can we start with you? My immediate reaction, as someone who's who's not so much
2: in the remote care space, is that I don't I don't know who Hinge and Sword are, um, and so I like as you were finishing off, I found myself googling them to, really quick to try to understand what they were uh, what they're up to because it seems like the the piece that doesn't connect for me is the is the what this is right like I understand that there is this haptic sensing but like my brain was bouncing back and forth between like a rumbling xbox controller versus like a remote a robotic arm that gives like sensory information back to a physician so that they that like you set up in your home to help with diagnosis and like I don't know the what of of what's going on here is but like the need that you've articulated, it feels very real to me, right? Like as we move from a mostly in-person to a much more remote healthcare system, this, this core idea of haptic feedback and the ability to like my my I grew up in a medical household and like whenever I would get hurt, my dad would put me on the table and he would just start poking me and be like, does it hurt here? Does it hurt here? How about here? And like that's where the diagnosis would come from. And so I I feel like this idea of physical feedback in the remote setting could be a major unlock. Um but but the the what and the differentiation as someone who's not deep in the space today, um, that that was tough for me to get.
0: Mariana?
1: I want to be mindful here that a two-minute context is a hard context, right? You're never going to be held to this standard in, in talking to investors. And so things you did very well, you 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 stated the need in the world clearly. You made it personal. You stated your technical background that need immediately gave me some sense, some sense of credibility about why you're well-suited and personally motivated. So all of those things are very good. The problem is that I've come to the end of this like James, and I, I'm thinking, I have no idea what the, what is like, what the thing is. And for myself with a robotics background, I'll tell you that my bias is, Oh dear, you know, this, this sounds like potentially something that could be either expensive and difficult to program. And then how do you like whose hands, how do you get it in front of people who need the remote sensing, right? There's a logistics question here that immediately feels a little bit untenable to me. Then the and and I'm just projecting at this point, right? That's the that's the challenge, which is you get in conjecture. And again, we have two minutes, so um, I I want to be mindful that this might not be the most reasonable feedback. But what I'll say is, from from a perspective of someone who's dealt a lot with robotics out in the real world, you have you have generally two challenges with it: is either works well, but it's expensive and hard to go and distribute in the world, or it works. Pretty poorly or medium well, but it's really easy to knock off. And right, and so how do you how do you skirt around the fact that it's potentially whatever you're building easily replicable by others the moment they figure out what you're doing? And then as a startup, it's just really hard to control brand. the The other piece that doesn't quite close for me is, you know, humans are really good at haptics. Like we're way better, uh, in the sense of. Uh, it, it, like exerting pressure on one another, and then actually managing to like recreate and pressure that. And so, also answering the question of why it wouldn't just be cheaper to have another human in the room and train them virtually about how to do a haptic or, or touch based diagnostic is something you probably really want to get ahead of.
0: Yeah, that, that that's that's very good feedback. And two minutes is very hard. But David, I was I was hoping to give you a, a an extra forty five seconds or something here to explain how it works.
4: Oh, sure. And so the beauty of haptics is that it does come in many flavors. So we're actually for our first rollout using uh, mid-air haptics, which is uh, using ultrasonic uh, uh, frequencies that you can't, it's no wearable or anything like that, no robotic arm. You're projecting uh, uh, sound waves that you can shape and convert into something that has tactile feedback. And our delivery mechanism, it's a very portable and accessible laptop that has cameras attached to it and other types of uh, mechanisms that allow for Uh, People who have certain specialties, they stick their hand over the projector and actually have the equivalent sensation of somebody doing a palpitation. Uh, Our goal is not to replicate uh, uh, human real touch, but it's to take care of a simple challenge that we deal with now. Uh, If you live in a major city like New York City, Chicago, or something like that, you've got great care. But if you live in the state of New York and you're up near Buffalo, you're going to have to drive that four hours to get to the great care. So we're solving up front a geographic time and place problem where there aren't enough trained professionals that could actually cater to the people in need today. And so our first rollout, we're targeting, uh, not the whole body, but we're looking at hand and wrist uh, uh, care first uh, that tie to certain neurological disorders like multiple sclerosis or ataxias that you might get if you have a stroke, which there's a huge cost burden as those conditions progress to worse and there needs to be some intermediary action happening,
2: so. I would say, The first twenty seconds of your response there was like so sharp and clear that like if you're if you're ever in a two minute time crunch or like the elevator pitch scenario again, right? Something there about like we're using sound waves and like you could like because that's almost like an aha, this is a cool new technology moment for me. Like and now I'm imagining how this would work and like you've drawn me in. From like, okay, you're using sound waves and you can transmit touch and this haptic feedback through ultrasonic, like ultrasonic waves with a laptop in the room. That's much more visual and much cooler. Um, so I think
0: that's a really good hook. Uh, that I agree completely. David, thank you so much for presenting. Well, thank you for your time and your feedback. Thank you so much. All right. We got one more, friends. We got one more. We had Diego coming. Diego is coming to us from Peru, I believe.
5: Hi there. How are you? Yes. Hi, everyone. Good. Uh, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for being here. We have two minutes to present your company and we'll start it now.
5: Yeah. First, uh, congratulations, James. Uh, I thought Cameron was an awesome business model. Uh, looking forward to hearing more from, from your company. Um, I'm clearly the, the Walker here. I'm in, in fintech. So I'm the CEO of FTB. Uh, we're in an FX and cross border payments fintech for SMEs based in Peru, um, with the vision of becoming LATAM's one stop shop platform for SMEs daily transaction needs. Uh, We want to achieve this by providing SMEs with a last mile solution for the B2B payments processes through an easy to connect platform. Uh, So why focus on this? Um, SMEs are a poorly served segment uh, by the banking industry uh, while they represent about 90% of businesses and more than 50% of the employment worldwide. Um, usually you have like the top-notch corporations or, or big company segments, which is well served by banking executives. Um, and on the other side, you have the retail sector, or the consumer sector that's well served via the digital platforms. But these digital platforms are not really um, properly or fully adapted for SMEs uh, needs, and, and especially in developed markets like, uh, like LATAM. So we started with a local FX service where companies could buy and sell, where they can buy and sell US dollars via bank wires. Um, and then we implemented cross-border payments to further service the needs of our customer, right? Because they don't, they don't need to buy or sell US dollars, they need to make a payment. Uh, so we're now able to pay more than 20 currencies to more than 150 uh, countries. And we're looking to expand to mass local payments. And um, so we have, we have to be able to serve the a full range of needs of our customers, not, not, not just going to pay their foreign suppliers, but also paying their local suppliers. Um, and these, with this platform or full suite of services and products, we're looking to expand regionally to other countries in Tatam, particularly Mexico.
0: That was very nice and concise. Thank you so much. Well done. Mariana, let's start with you. Any feedback?
1: Yeah, I, I, I want to be clear that I, I don't feel like I'm at my best and highest use providing you feedback on this because fintech startups are a bit out of my personal wheelhouse. That said, I I think that any pitch, particularly a fintech company in an emerging market focused on SMEs needs to speak about what the solution space is already or equivalent businesses that have taken off in the U.S.? Like, what is the competitive landscape? Because one of the questions that my mind goes to is to say, well, are there people doing this? You have various companies that have been trying to provide all sorts of fintech services. I imagine that they've also become aware of the SME market. And so if it has so little penetration from fintech companies today, as you're suggesting, my question would be, why are you then uniquely suited to service them? Because I frankly don't entirely buy that it's you guys are the first ones to have thought of this as a necessary market. It, SMEs world over are tend to be you know large, distributed, like small individually small, collectively very large, and so there's lots of people who focus on them for various reasons. the The challenge ends up to some extent becoming in a highly distributed model where you have lots of these little businesses poking around in the world, how do you get in front of them in a cost-effective manner, right? So how do you actually build a network effect when these businesses are really spread spectrum across so many different locales, diversities, business types? Um, And so I I think that even in a two-minute pitch, it's probably worth anchoring on how is this comparing to what their services are today, what others have tried, why it hasn't worked. Um, And if you truly believe that nobody else is doing anything remotely like this, and there are no other startups that are focused on this market, that's fine. I I would be surprised to hear that. But again, I'm not an expert in the field.
0: Yeah, very good. James, let's let's go over to you. So
2: I'm even more out of my depth on this one than Mariana is. So I apologize in advance um but but i think i come back to a little bit of the the why on the fundraise not being entirely clear for me because it sounds like the business that you just described it sounds like it could be a great business and it's unclear to me what like what the venture capital funding would be for and if this would be like a logarithmically growing kind of like fat tailed market or is this the sort of thing that like you build the platform and then it just like turns into a great business maybe making millions or tens of millions or even hundreds of millions of dollars per year um but it like i i don't think of you know being a of facilitator of foreign exchange as like a platform, a technology platform that takes over the the world or takes over this, you know, has this huge, um, huge market size. I could be wrong about that completely, but it's just a sense that I got. So, so my advice or my, my feedback there would be either to say, Hey, we've got this platform and then we're raising money because, you know, SMEs are hard to get to. So we need a big sales team and we can get a great return on every salesperson that we have, which would be hypothesis number one that I had of like, why raise capital into this is that there's just this great return on like marketing or sales dollar spent, or you're going to get a great deal as we build this platform. And then we're going to be profitable and like an investor or, you know, someone who's really focused on something like this can be an enabler for a small amount of money. And then it turns into a great business really quickly. And I think that distinction didn't come through, but that's where my head would go for, you know, again, two minutes, Uh, not in my field. But but that's that's where my my head jumped to from the pitch that you gave.
0: I I think both those feedbacks are very valid. Right. Right. I I think if if you if you can address both the issues well, Diego, I I think uh, you're going to have a better picture involved. Thank you so much, everyone. Mariana, James, this has been a wonderful episode. I really learned a lot. Well, anyway, tune in next week, 3 o'clock Eastern, noon, Pacific, and I'll be here. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you then. TechCrunch Live is hosted by myself, TechCrunch Managing Editor Matt Burns. We're produced by Teresa Solo and Maggie Stamets, with video production by Ishad Kalkarni, Julio Barrientos, and Dennis Martinez. We are edited by Andrew Mendez, Maggie Stamets, and Teresa Solo. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch Audio Products. If you want your questions to be featured in an upcoming episode, email us at podcast at techcrunch.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.